As we come to God's word, let's join in prayer. Father, it's so important that we hear well uh, what your word has to say to us. It's so vital that we grasp hold of the truths that are presented in it. And as we open it up this morning, may you lead us in our understanding that we might not just see Jesus, but we might understand more of his coming and his death for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Of all the people in the scriptures who are presented to us warts and all, there is probably no one as confusing and contradictory as the man we know as King Solomon. What a strange mix Solomon was. Promised by God with a name that means loved by God, and whose intellect and wisdom, as we are about to find, was unsurpassed in the whole world. One who loved God and would go on and build a magnificent temple for God with faith, worship, trust and obedience high on his agenda. But he was also equally inconsistent, disobedient, lacked wisdom and compromising. What a mix of good with bad and bad with good. What a mix of righteousness and unrighteousness, of godliness and ungodliness, of holiness, of evil. And yet while we note all these inconsistencies in Solomon, how good it is that all this is recorded in the scriptures for us. It's encouraging. Not only encouraging in showing us that God's grace is bigger than our failures, but also encouraging because we get to see how sin works in our hearts. Now we are early on, in fact very early on in the reign of Solomon, before us is the benefit of studying his early years. I say this because the trajectory of a person's life is often set early on. The way you apply yourself or don't apply yourself at school, primary and secondary levels, the way you conduct yourself with your parents at home and your siblings, the way you approach relationships and courtship, the way you allow your circumstances to shape and define your character, these all have a bearing on the type of person you're going to become. Seeds have a habit of being scattered, taking root and producing fruit. And there is a strong relationship between the kind of seed and the kind of fruit, isn't there? If you sow seeds of laziness, dishonesty or disobedience to take root, these can and will grow into a rich crop of destruction at a later time. Likewise, if you sow seeds of diligence and honesty and selflessness, these will also set you up well for life. This is not to say that you can't change for the better or for the worse later on, 
But it is to say, the saying is true, that well begun is often half done. And so Solomon is a case in point. For recorded for us are both kinds of seeds. The ones that were good in his life, the ones that were not so good in his life, that would bear much fruit, not good kinds of fruit, later on. This morning let's think upon how both of these were evident in his early years. First note from the text, the bad seeds that grew into bad fruit. The bad seeds that grew into bad fruit. Overall, chapter 3 commends Solomon more than it condemns him. It gives us a clear view of the best in Solomon. But it begins with these small compromises that grow and grow to become huge snares in his life later on. So verses 1 to 3 begin with these small seeds and they are laid bare for us all to note and be warned about. We find this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Already three things are highlighted for us that will be a great source of trouble for Solomon and so bring his witness to an end in the kingdom into strife. It all began with an unholy marriage. Then came the priority of building his own house and this was followed by a failure to regulate the worship of the Lord. Let's look at each of these in turn. Regarding his marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and the fact that he married his daughter, we should remember that God's instructions to his people had always been clear. You only have to think on Exodus 34. Verses 12 to 16, where the Lord says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break down their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. It's not as if the Lord's instructions for his people were too unclear. They might have been hard to do, but there was nothing here that was difficult to grasp. As the king, Solomon had the responsibility of setting the standard in this regard and he failed from the outset. He may have thought in his own mind that forging a marriage alliance with Egypt would be a political help 
and seeing that he was never going to be a man of war, this would have had good results for the nation's stability. But instead of obeying God and allowing God to do the blessing, he followed worldly wisdom and worldly ways instead. Now this matter about marriage is not just an Old Testament command, it's a New Testament principle. Believers are free to marry in the Lord and are not free to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And though there's been many a believer who's insisted that this principle doesn't apply to them, for whatever reason, what happened with Solomon stands as a strong, blatant warning about how it all works out. That is to say, it doesn't. We read ahead, chapter 11, verse 4. We find this, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. The story is told that one day a lady came to Spurgeon about a male friend who was an unbeliever And she spoke about how confident she was that God was encouraging her to marry him for she believed that God would use her to save him. Surgeon stood up and got on a chair, stood on the chair and asked the lady if it would be easier for him to pull her up or for her to pull him down. The lady got the point. Being pulled down is far easier and so Solomon's wrong choice early on in his life set the course for the rest of his life. The next seed was his priority on building his own house before the Lord's house. Here it sounds quite innocent but it will become apparent as we work through the text that Solomon ends up spending more resources on his own house than he does on the Lord's house. Now we have to remember here that Solomon had been appointed by God to do what David could not do, to build God a temple. You remember that God, David said to the Lord, let me build you a house. And David, the Lord said to David, no, I'll build you a house. Your son will build me a house. However, this major purpose of Solomon's became a secondary importance to the building of his own house. That is to say, his palace. First of all, his pursuit of wealth and large estates eventually resulted in him enslaving his people to do his own bidding. In fact, the economic hardship and oppression will be so great from Solomon taxing and indenturing his people that a civil war will break out and Israel will be split into north and south. Third problem is the one of sacrificing on high places. In Kings, the expression, the high places, are very negative and associated with idolatry. The background of all this was that the people of Israel were so influenced by the Canaanites around them that they syncretized, a word that means mixed together into one, the worship of the Lord with the idols of the nations and conducted this false worship on high mountains, high places. Now this again happened 
despite the warning of the Lord in Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 to 4, about not worshipping the Lord there and destroying these places. Now, a number of Old Testament kings are criticised for not destroying the high places as instructed. And although Solomon is credited with loving God, as we saw in verse 3, it was said with qualification, only that he made offerings and sacrifices at the high places. Now, I'm not suggesting that he was sacrificing to false gods, but I am suggesting that Solomon did not guard his heart as to how God wanted to be worshipped in conformity with his requirements. A casual approach, a following the crowd approach on these matters set Solomon up for more costly compromises later on. The thing to understand here is that sin begins at a root seed form. It starts small and it grows. It doesn't come full grown, does it? Solomon did not leap straight into accumulating 300 wives and 700 concubines. It all started so small. One seed sown. That's the problem, isn't it? Remember how Jesus pointed out the root sins that take up place in our hearts? The root sin of adultery is lust. The root sin of murder is anger. And that of undue and excessive anxiety is a failure to trust God. It's the little sins we have to guard against. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. The writer of Song of Solomon mentions that. These are the little sins, the seed-sized sins, the weed-sized sins that we fail to root out when their leaves appear that end up doing the damage because if we leave them unrooted, they grow and grow and they soon take over the whole garden and end up producing fruits that we're ashamed of. Why do we let them live? And why don't we root them out? Well, the answer is because we rationalise them. We say to ourselves that these sins aren't so bad, they're only little. They're certainly not fully grown, so that must be quite okay. Or that it's okay to allow small sins to continue to live because nobody's being hurt just yet by them. Or you can still serve the Lord while they exist. Or maybe it is that we let them live because after all, everybody else around us does. And we don't want to be too fanatical about holiness, do we? And then we hear and see what Jesus says in Mark 7, that all the outward aspects of evil have a root. And the root of that seed is in our hearts. So the warning to us of where it all begins is right here because it began in the heart of the wisest man in the world. Secondly, let's think about the good seeds that grow into good fruit. As we look at the good in Solomon, we're told in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. These words are given of no other person in scripture. Did you know that? Solomon loved 
the Lord. The full statement says Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. Solomon's love for God was real and it issued in Solomon respecting his father and following and obeying that godly advice we saw two weeks ago. Love issued in action in obedience. Verse 4 tells us that Solomon worshipped the Lord as he offered a thousand burnt offerings to him. This expression of worship must have been pleasing to the Lord. For following it, we are told in verse 5 that when Solomon went to sacrifice at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and basically said to him, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Whatever you want. Now again we note this offer of the Lord stands unique in the scriptures. There is no other offer comparable to it. We see God answering prayers for victory and requests for healing and appeals for safety, but this event is surely a once-off. And it comes in a strange context, doesn't it? God appears to Solomon in dream, even though the king is in the wrong place, worshipping and so in effect condoning the use of the high place. And this appearance to Solomon with a blank check must be viewed as nothing less than God being abundantly gracious to Solomon. And who are we to downplay that? If God wants to be gracious, then that's entirely his prerogative. He can have mercy on whom he wishes to have mercy. After all, he is God and he can do whatever he wants. And this is what he did. Back to this open checkbook that the Lord placed in front of Solomon and said, fill in the detail. Note that this was a test and Solomon passed it with flying colours. We see in verses 6 to 9 he asked what he asked for in response and the humility and the sincerity in which he replies in those verses. His response has three key ingredients. The first is a, a praise-filled appreciation for God's gracious and powerful promise-keeping. He spoke of God's covenant faithfulness to David and the fact that God's will had eventuated in bringing him to the throne in fulfilment of the promises that God had made and this made Solomon to ask boldly for something that would equip him for the task that God brought him about. His request is firmly grounded in the understanding that he is in God's will. It's much like the apostles who say in Acts Give us boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus wherever we go. Of course that's God's will. When we pray in line with God's clear purposes, there is always an expectation that God will answer yes. Then Solomon modelled humility. He was aware of the importance of his task and what a high thing it is to be put in a position of authority over the people of God. And instead of letting this go to his head, saying, well, I'm king and I know everything, he said, I'm a little child and I know nothing. I'm ignorant. I'm inexperienced. His belief that God placed him on the throne does not mean that he did not need God to equip him for the task He'd been called but made that all the more urgent and important. And then we can say that Solomon asked for the right gift, the gift that keeps on giving, the gift of wisdom. Rather than all the things, 
that he could have asked for that would have advanced his own prestige, his own comfort, his own security. And again, God was pleased and responded in verses 11 to 14 as we see, giving to Solomon what he asked for, but giving him more than what he asked for, all that he didn't ask for. So that he ended up with everything and not just one thing. He's like a little child who goes into a toy shop hoping that mum or dad will buy at least one thing to take home only to find that mum or dad buys the whole shop and delivers it in a truck. Kids overwhelmed. All this. I got one thing I asked for and everything else. This is super abundant grace that God shows to him, even promising that he will give him long life if he would but walk in the ways of David, his father. Now I've often thought, and we had this question at home group the other night, maybe you have too, what would you have said? What would you say if the Lord appeared to you with an open cheque and said, fill in the blanks, ask whatever you will maybe where your mind first goes to, in response to that question, indicates where your heart lies and which direction it points. Would you have asked for riches? Would you have asked for health or victory or success? Would you have asked for character traits such as faith or patience or joy or even wisdom? All we know is that Solomon asked for that which would make him a better servant of God and not that which would make his life easier or happier. And God's response to him reminds us that though we are not kings ourselves, we can pray like a king if our prayers are in line with his will. If that's the case, we have every encouragement from the scriptures and all that it teaches about prayer that we can expect answers from God. You can ask for wisdom. James says so. You can ask and God will give it to you. And above all, reflect that in Jesus we have one who is greater than Solomon, in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. If you are truly seeking wisdom, then seek Christ. Become truly wise. So we have this somewhat contradictory, confusing character of a man in the person of Solomon, blessed with knowing God's love to him, blessed with wisdom upon him, blessed by superabundant grace flowing to him, and yet at the same time sowing seeds to his sinful nature that will come back to bite him hard. It's probably something we'll never really grasp with our whole mind, but it does remind us that as the church... We're like that mixed bag of lollies. We're a mixed bag, aren't we? God's people. Loving God as we know we ought or professing to, but sometimes failing to do the obvious, loving one another, which shows that we don't love God, which we profess. Now I mentioned before that what you might have asked for if God came to you with this open cheque and a promise to give you whatever you ask for. But 
perhaps a better question to ask is and consider as we close is not what Solomon asked for, but what Jesus asked for. And before you say, wait, when did that happen? When did God say to Jesus, ask for whatever you want? Let me point you in the direction of the Garden of Gethsemane. As we heard in our reading this morning, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. When Jesus said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? See, if God loved Solomon and called him his beloved, how much more did he love his own son, his own beloved son? And how much more would God have given Jesus whatever Jesus asked for? Even rescue, if that was what he wanted. But Jesus didn't ask for that. He asked instead for grace to continue with the plan. Not my will, but yours be done. So while some doubt may may remain in your mind about Solomon's contradictory character, let no doubt remain in your mind with respect to Jesus, who as King and Divine Son of God laid his life down freely that we might be his forever. He went through with the plan, something that Solomon, as wise as he was, could never do and never did for us. Will you come to Jesus with a thankful heart that he asked not to get out of the plan and avoid the cross? Let's pray. We're thankful to you, our gracious God, for your own dear Son, our Lord and Redeemer. There was no mix with him of good and bad, no character traits that we can find that were flaws, no unrighteous desires or unrighteous acts, No failure on his part to obey fully everything you called him to do. No seeds of sin growing in his heart. Unlike us. And we confess, Lord, we could never have saved ourselves. We couldn't have died for our own sin, for we had sin in our own heart. We couldn't die for the sin of others because of our own sin. But yet you laid our sin upon the sinless, upon the one who had no sin of his own to bear, so that he might take our sins in his body all the way to the cross 
and thereby deal with them and put it right. We've read today of his burden in the garden. We thank you that he did not opt out of the plan but fully obedient went all the way to the cross, even to death. Humble us, remind us afresh of how great he is and how desperate our need of him. And where hearts have not bowed to him, not confessed him, not come to him, please move us so that we would and continue to do so. We pray this in his name. Amen.